buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this John Richardson and the Future Notes special on the situation in Ukraine being introduced because it is special by me, Mark Steenson. I am joined as ever by my fellow Future Note compadre, the wonderful Ed Gillespie. Hello, Ed. Hello, Mark. And we're actually sat in the same room so we can touch each other as well. And uh, we have, as ever, the inimitable, the brilliant and uh, the slightly incompetent John Richardson. Good evening. Uh, good, uh, and we're recording this in the morning, so that already you've made a mistake with your very first two words. And this is a complete first. We have never done this before. We've got somebody back. Um, so Richard Nuji, Lieutenant General Richard Nuji, you are the first guest we've ever had back, and you've come back quite quickly. This is almost like a military takeover of the show. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. For those of you who might not have heard our previous episode with Richard, I'll just quickly introduce him. He is, uh, well, used to be basically the head of HR for the entire armed forces. So a very long-serving, very high-ranking um, soldier, very well-respected, much loved within the armed forces. Um, but also we had him on last time because he is the author of the Net Zero strategy for, for the MOD. But we thought because of what's going on in Ukraine, we, we, we put out a little special to sort of talk about what's going on because we think a lot of our listeners would like that. So, um, so, so thanks for joining us, Richard, at such short notice. I'm going to go to Ed, who's going to start us off with a kind of a, a, a literary moment. Well, yeah, I think it's important to caveat this conversation because I think we're we're also moving in this territory where everyone's gone from being pandemic armchair commentators into rapidly becoming strategic military experts. And I was moved this morning by a quote from Douglas Rushkoff in the States, who said, instead of filling our channels and brains with uninformed opinions, we should stop and breathe. We are not there and we are not informed and we should shut up, except maybe to stand in solidarity with our fellow human beings. We can bear witness to what is happening and instead of adding more conflict and confusion to the crisis, we can help metabolise the trauma of our fellow human beings. We are all connected after all. Um, I mean, that said, we're going to try and wrangle through some questions with Richard. Um, but I think it's important to make that point at the beginning. You know, we're not trying to uh, get solutions out of this. We're trying to come at this from a position uh, of deep empathy and understanding. Yes, I mean, and, and, and to this point, you know, we, we are uh, not there and we are not informed. But Richard, you have been in place like this and you are more informed than we are on this. So, so I'm going to start with one of my favourite quotes by Neil Ferguson, the historian, who said, the only real law of history is the law of unintended consequences. And I suppose, how do you see this playing out, Richard? You know, did, did, is this the end of Putin? Do we? Does it mean we get the unintended concept of a rapid move to renewables? Or is it a new long Cold War? Or, or do more comedians become prime ministers, John? That's the other thing that, of course, we're, we're thinking about. You know, does, does suddenly people go, actually, you know, Zelensky's done a good job. We, we want more people from the comedic professions to lead our countries. And, and, and we see John Richardson as, as prime minister this time next year. I'll let John answer that one. Um, uh, I, I think I think I'm all in favour of that. If 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 our politicians have the uh, courage and uh, the tenacity of uh, President Zelensky, um, it would be amazing, um, and, and the single-minded focus on what he what he's trying to achieve. Um, I ought to say that I'm, I have not been in operations for some time, and therefore um, I can only make uh, judgments um, the, uh, on what I read as much as um, what anybody else reads. But I suppose, as you say, I have been in similar, not not situations like this in Europe, um, obviously. Um, so I think this is a real 
game changer. And um, you're seeing lots of people say that. And I think it's a game changer in all sorts of ways. Um, I think whatever it is, it is horrendous uh, for the people of Ukraine. I think actually, we will begin to see a bit of sympathy for the people of Russia, not the kleptocracy at the top of Russia, but the people and I'm seeing more and more uh, sort of quotes from people who are saying, look, I'm Russian, I don't agree with this, I don't like this, but there's very little I can do. And I think um, what we don't want is a a sort of a, a general anti-Russian, um, all Russians are bad type image from this, because I don't think that's true. Um, but I do think that um, Ukrainians are in a very, very hard time and are in for a very, very hard time. And, and how long that current period is, um, is really, really difficult to judge. Um, but at the very least, I would say we're in for months of this and possibly an awful lot longer. Um, and and I think Putin is a really single-minded, difficult person who does not is not interested in civilian casualties and is not interested in negotiating at all at the moment. We may bring him to that position, but I just don't think he's there at the moment at all. Wow. I mean, it, it seems remarkable that we spoke not many weeks ago and the topic was, you know, the future of conflict as a sort of almost, you know, speculative idea. And now here we are sort of deep into one. And and I would say, you know, being very specific about where we're recording at this point, going into what you're saying there, it feels like we are transitioning as witnesses to this conflict from the initial trauma of seeing the bombings and the shellings and thinking this is a short-term thing that, you know, we can stop Putin, to now, as you say, this is going to be months, if not years. How, as as someone with some sort of military experience, how, how do you recommend people sort of come to terms with that? Because I think at the moment we're still seeing, when I watch a lot of the debates about this, it's people saying, but surely if we if we sent in planes now, we could stop it straight away. And there's obviously consequences and, and direct reasons why we're not doing that but how, how do you manage that shift psychologically to we're going to be watching this for a long time so i think this is very difficult um funny enough i, I wrote a, what was an award-winning essay in the 1980s saying why haven't we broken out in war again in europe because uh, europe's history is of um, going to war approximately every 40 to 50 years over the last hundreds um, the only time that hasn't occurred is after the napoleonic war in 1815 where after 20 years of warfare which uh, genuinely changed this country. Um, uh, there are things that we still do as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, and it's just in our psyche now. Um, you know, it, it was such a horrendous war. It lasted for so long that actually the reality is people, Europe was exhausted, um, and so didn't go to war is a major war until 1914. If you look at the only other period of, of, of that long distance or, or long time of peace in Europe, it's been between 1945 and today. And, and I put that down in the 1980s, I put that down to uh, the nuclear deterrent, um, making it absolutely imperative that we did not go to war with a nuclear power, because um, uh, the consequence would be what, what became known as MAD, um, the doctrine of MAD, um, which is aptly named, which was mutually assured destruction, uh, because we would fire nuclears and they would fire nuclears and we'd end up with a, a nuclear holocaust. I, I don't think that's necessarily gone away. But I think that um, uh, uh, Russia has uh, shown uh, that they are utterly ruthless. If you look at what happened in Grozny, which was in Chechnya, if you look at what happened in Aleppo, which was in Syria, and I was talking to somebody who was out there based in uh, Jordan during the Syrian sort of conflict, um, he was saying that the the casualties started at a couple of thousand, a couple of hundred, couple of thousand, ended up at half a million because Russia and Putin just did not care for civilian about civilian casualties. Um, I think that uh, Ukraine is very close to home, very, very close to home. There is a real perception of threat, whether it is true or not, um, is another matter altogether. There's a real perception of threat that Putin won't stop at Ukraine. He's talked often about um, wanting to uh, rebuild, if you like, the sphere of influence. He doesn't want to build the, the Soviet Union again, but he wants to build a sphere of influence around Russia. Well, there's only pretty much two other places he could go. Uh, one is into NATO countries such as Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, Estonia particularly 150 kilometres away from St. Petersburg, or to Moldova. 
which isn't part of NATO, um, and which I thought was really interesting, the day Russia invaded, they applied to become part of the EU. You know, they wanted that security. So I think we've got to um, live with the fact that Putin is utterly, utterly ruthless. And I saw um, just recently thermobaric weapons being mentioned, uh, seriously mentioned for the first time. And pictures, I don't know where they came from. I don't know when they were of thermobaric weapons moving down roads. Um, so they may that may have been exercises months ago. It may have been today. But thermobaric weapons are sub-nuclear, but really, really horrible weapons. And and um, they're illegal if you fire them at civilians, um, and there is the fear that that will happen. And so I think what we've got to accept is that Putin will carry on until he is physically stopped. There are only two ways of physically stopping him, I would suggest. One is an internal action in Russia. I don't think Russia is yet in a position to do that. And the other is by physically being stopped in Ukraine and that he doesn't take over the whole of Ukraine as easily as he thought he would. I think the West has got to accept that this is a new reality um, because you've got somebody in power in Russia who is not particularly interested in negotiating. I mean, somebody was saying to me yesterday, um, do you think he just wanted to take the west of the, sorry, the east of the country, the east of the Dnieper, which sort of almost cuts Ukraine in half? I said, no, he wants to take over the whole country. He wants it to be a subordinate state to just just as um, another part of um, uh, Russia. He has consistently said it is not an independent country. He's consistently said it's not an independent state. It is part of the motherland of Russia. Um, And for whatever reason he says that, for whatever historical reason he's wrong or actual reason he's wrong, doesn't stop his perception, Putin's perception, that this should be part of greater Russia. And the net effect of that is he'll carry on until he tries to get there. That's a personal view, but it's one that I'm seeing echoed more and more, that it's really difficult to negotiate with somebody like Putin. As a soldier, which one of the things I'm thinking is that I've heard reports from sort of Russian soldiers thinking, yeah, they kind of bought that Kool-Aid, that Putin Kool-Aid, and were kind of of the impression that they were going to arrive and be seen as sort of, you know, friendly sort of... Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're leaving you of this this anomaly and now you're back with Mother Russia and and they would be welcomed with open arms and, of course, they're they're being shot at. I mean, for an army, it strikes me that the Russian army might be terribly, terribly demoralised quite quickly. And how how might that play out? So I think this is extraordinary. You've got one of the... um most powerful militaries in the world. Um, uh, Certainly Putin has put an enormous amount of money into the military in the last 10 to 15 years, Um, having having really fallen apart after the end of the Cold War, the Russian military, you know, all the images were of um, uh, ships that were tied up that were basically rusting to pieces. You had um, disasters at sea with the things like the Kursk, um, uh, the submarine that, um, you know, through faulty maintenance and so on, blew up underwater. You know, You've moved from that position to a position where everybody thought the Russian military were really powerful. So why isn't it doing better? It doesn't compute when you put physical assets, physical equipment against what the Ukrainians have got. Um, There are two reasons for that. One is that a sort of optimist view that actually the Western weapons which we have been providing to the Ukrainians are just superior to the Russians and the Russians can't get through the anti-tank missiles and things like that. That's that's a very optimistic view because that's not the answer to everything um, uh, and the air defence that we're providing for them and so on. The other is that actually the Russian soldiers have suddenly come to terms with what they are dealing with. There was a, a, a report, and, and I have no evidence for this at all, but and, and it's a, it may just be a rumour, but there's reports of this thing called the Wagner Group, which I've seen in newspapers being quoted. But the Wagner Group is a bunch of thugs, basically, who go around doing Putin's work for him. And there is rumour that uh, they took out some some Russian generals who refused to go into Ukraine, and they just killed them. There is um, evidence that Russian soldiers um, are surprised by the reception that they've received. Um, and, when, and, and the very fact that there's Russian prisoners of war um, is extraordinary. We had, I think it would be safe to say, almost no 
prisoners of war taken in Iraq and Afghanistan. Almost none. You know, you could count them on one hand, probably. And yet we're talking about 400. Uh, I heard a, a, um, a few days ago, uh, prisoners of war, it's probably more than that, Russians. What does that say about the type of conflict that it is? And the surprise of those, and I've seen a video of um, some Russian soldiers saying, we just didn't expect this. Some Russian soldiers apparently were told this was an exercise. So when bullets started flying at them, it utterly demoralizes an army. And so you, there is certainly some evidence to suggest that one of the reasons that the army is not doing better, um, the Russian army ought to be doing better, frankly, the fact that they're not is because the Russian soldiers are very low morale. Another sign of evidence of that is that two Russian major generals have been killed on the front line. Major generals, and I was one in Afghanistan, major generals go to the front line when um, things are going really badly wrong and you want to impose your will on your soldiers, you want to inspire, you want to motivate, you want to encourage, you want to try and build um, a a sort of sense of we're going to do this with soldiers on the front line. It's not often that major generals are needed to do that if you have a really good command structure. But the fact that two major generals have been killed in Ukraine, by all accounts, suggests that something's going wrong with the Russian army. Is the risk there as well, Richard, that you end up with this sort of depersonalised approach, you know, where instead of like trying to actually take cities, they just sit back because there is an artillery approach, which means you can bomb without having to look your enemy in the eye, you know, and because the Russians don't see Ukrainian civilians, understandably, as the enemy, um, that, you know, it's it's easier to sit back and, and shell rather than actually engage, particularly when people have been stepping in unarmed and approaching vehicles and approaching soldiers, uh, because they obviously feel they've got the, the will of the world broadly, you know, behind them. Uh, speaking as an artilleryman whose job was to lob shells into uh, enemy territory, I would say no. And, and I, you know, I've, I've met Russian soldiers. I went to the uh, Kantamirov division um, just outside Moscow um, in the 1990s. And Russian soldiers are just like we are. They, as much as we do, to try and um, stop civilians if they're allowed to, uh, sort of stop killing civilians if they're allowed to. So I don't think it's any easier just because you're lobbing shells that you don't see the um, uh, civilians um, unless they are being told that there are no civilians in these cities. Um, and that that is quite possible that they're just being fed propaganda which says mm. that um, there are no civilians and therefore you can you can fire into the cities. But I would say that it's much more about this is the Russian operandi. This is the way they operate. This is the way they operated in, in Chechnya. This is the way they operated in Syria. This um, And what you're seeing is destruction of the cities in order to, in exactly the same way that Germans tried to do in the Blitz, in exactly the same way as we tried to do in Dresden, in exactly the same way as we tried to do in Hamburg, is batter the civilians into submission by so attacking that actually you you batter the country in submission through destroying the city and destroying the civilians in it. And, and my sense is that that is the way the Russians have operated in the last 10 to 15 years. Why wouldn't they operate in this system before? So it's not about sparing the blushes of artillerymen. It is about this is the way they do things. It is a disastrous way of doing things, not only for civilians, but also for, for the buildings. But it's also disastrous for the Russians. And this it's a very short-sighted policy because fighting in a built-up area which is turned into rubble, as they know from their own experience of Stalingrad, is much more difficult because it gives um, rubble gives opportunities for, for shelter and for protection in a way that standing buildings offer you a bit more predictability of where the likely sniper is or whatever so this is this is this is counterproductive but it is what they're doing i would suggest it also strikes me i mean if you're trying to you know i'm no military strategist but if you're trying to take over a country for instance it probably makes a lot of sense not to damage huge amounts of the infrastructure that you are hoping to inherit isn't it i mean if you just you destroy a country but then you what's, what's the point of of invading a country that you then totally destroyed and have to completely rebuild with the population that hates you anyway. I mean, it seems incredibly short-sighted. But, but, but Mark, at the, uh, 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 the risk of saying something to you, which I've never said before, you're talking like a rational human being. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Richard. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. 
You're absolutely right. And um, it, what is interesting is, um, and, and you can, you, you know, I wouldn't want to draw parallels, but when, when, when we have tried to operate within a country, we really try not to destroy infrastructure because that infrastructure is there to support the community. And therefore, if you destroy all the infrastructure, you're not supporting the community and the community end up um, at your um, uh, behest, uh, have to do, um, you know, have to rely on what you can provide them. And that's more difficult for you. So, so it is totally counterproductive. Yes, you're right, but I don't think Putin's rational, and I don't think the Russian system that um, uh, that the senior generals have have um, got experience of in Grozny, in Aleppo, and in Syria actually shows uh, that this is, um, uh, you know, it, it's not rational, but it is what they're doing. Can I ask more about that that system then? Because obviously, in a Bond film, the baddie has the big red button in front of them. And I've always felt when we talk about leaders we don't like that actually you're talking about a system and there are checks in place, certainly in democratic countries where it's not as simple as somebody saying, I want to launch this nuclear attack. Can you give us any reassurance about Putin that when he says put the nukes on standby, what are the checks that have to go through? And can we be reassured that somewhere along that chain of command there is a general who understands that he will end up in the hague or if he presses that button or there are a number of people that get together and say we're not actually going to press this are we so i ought to preface this by saying i am absolutely not an expert in this um this is from my reading and from my opinion and from, from from understanding so i'm not an expert in this so it is a personal view but i um uh i i did see a celebration of a russian colonel who in the cuban missile crisis refused to press the button and um, I have no doubt that something horrible happened to him, uh, not least because he disobeyed a direct order, regardless of the fact that the order is illegal. And mm. I thought it was particularly important that the Defence Secretary went on a programme, poss- possibly um, Radio 4, turning around and saying um, Russian soldiers should not forget uh, that just because you've been ordered to do it, Nuremberg trials made it totally clear that just because you've been ordered to do it is not an excuse mm. for doing illegal acts. Um, you have a moral and a personal responsibility to be able to to make the decision for yourself as to whether it is an illegal act or not. And I thought it was really interesting that he said that and re-emphasised that, which, as I say, came out of the Nuremberg trials uh, at the end of the Second World War. Um, is there somebody in Russia who is brave enough to turn around and say, I'm not prepared to press the button? I would really, really hope so. But um, dictators have a habit of getting rid of people who disagree with them and have a habit of getting rid of people who show too much promise. There's some evidence in the Second World War and in other experiences in the Soviet era where if a general became too too popular or became uh, too independently minded, they were quite done away with. For a dictator, what they need is somebody who's just going to follow their orders. So I personally don't think Putin will use nuclear weapons. I, I, I don't think we'll get to that. I think he'll use um, weapons like thermobaric weapons, um, which are below the threshold of nuclear, because nuclear is such a difficult, um, even for him, I think nuclear is a is a, a line that he doesn't necessarily want to cross. Mm. Um, but thermobaric is just horrendous weapons. And, and you know, you can do an awful lot of damage without going nuclear. I I think that um, he's likely to use those uh, before he uses nuclear. So I don't think he'll use nuclear. But am I completely confident that there's somebody in his chain? It would take a very brave soldier to do that. I am sure they exist um, uh, to turn around and say, no, I'm not prepared to do it. But are there enough of them so that all the buttons are not pressed rather Mm. than just one? And there's an interesting question that follows on from that, Richard. And when you talk about the sort of personal and moral motivation and obligation because you know on the other side of that you've then got Zelensky and the Ukrainians you know sort of inviting international recruits into some sort of you know Ukrainian foreign legion we've seen news reports of one or two British servicemen you know illegally traveling um, out to join those sort of international brigades in a sort of Spanish civil war style piece and I always remember reading the memorial on the the South Bank 
to the to the International Brigade of the Spanish Civil War, where the motto was, you know, they went because their open eyes could see no other way. I mean, do you see that as a, another potential risk of escalation as, as, as people so horrified and so outraged by what seems to be being perpetrated that you get this sort of globalised recruitment into the fray? I mean, I think I think it's possible, um, and I would do everything I possibly could to encourage people not to do it. I think we have learned from the Spanish Civil War, from the wars of the 20th century, um, that in, um, uh, unless you have some training, um, it is a um, you end up being a casualty. You you end up being less help because what you're doing is if you end up as a casualty because you're not trained because you don't really understand what's happening therefore you're um, uh, adding to the burden of logistics of getting a casualty back of treating a casualty etc 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 so 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 i'd strongly encourage people not to go um uh, i think um uh, even those who are trained i think it's very very difficult but i can understand that some people will feel that that's the only thing they can do. I would argue that um, actually there are things that we can do which are more effective. Um, I think we can be um, enormously supportive to refugees coming to this country, and I would, you know, I would, I would love it if we, we welcomed them with open arms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, r- r- rather than what's going on at the moment, frankly. You know, I, th- I think the, the fact that people are not talking about sanctions anymore, but talking about economic warfare on Russia is extraordinary, because I don't think we've ever been in that position before. We're doing unprecedented economic warfare in a very connected world. Um, and that economic warfare includes McDonald's closing down, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And we are providing aid, both humanitarian aid and lethal aid to the Ukrainians to try and um, help them as much as we possibly can. That is the best way of us supporting um, and using our talents for what we are. There actually are very few people who are currently trained, well-adapted soldiers who, um, very few, who would um, add value to that. There are some, but there Mm -hmm. are very few. Somebody deciding he's going to go and um, be a glory hero and and fight in Ukraine who has no idea which end of a weapon to use is just a liability, frankly. It's not going to be helpful to the Ukrainians. What they need is trained uh, people who speak their language, i.e. Ukrainians, who can use the equipment that we give them and we train them on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and the follow-up question to that, because I think that's that's a, a great sort of a point to make. Um, but you know, you, uh, it's the first time, and I think we've heard this terminology of sort of lethal aid alongside sort of humanitarian aid. But at what point, Richard, does a proxy war, which is essentially what is happening at the moment, isn't it? As you say, supplying equipment, supplying weapons, lethal aid, humanitarian aid, you know, intelligence yeah, um, and, and training become a real war because it seems like we're everyone is dancing around the edges of when of, of avoiding this tipping into a real war, even though to all intensive purposes, whatever aspect you start to look at, short of a no-fly zone, it is almost not a proxy war anymore, is it? And I know that's a delicate, delicate line to tread, but that seems to be the issue. I think this is um, not semantics. I think this is actually very, very important. The West and the East, the whole way through the Cold War, fought proxy wars, whether it was in Vietnam, whether it was um, in some other countries in Africa, where Soviets supported one proxy and the West supported another proxy and they were fighting each other. And however unedifying that is, um, you know, wouldn't it be a wonderful world if none of us had to fight at all, frankly, but the reality, you know, we live with the world we live with and the world we live with at the moment is is Putin um, uh, invading uh, a sovereign state, um, Ukraine. But I think that there's, that there is an important distinction uh, between fighting with proxies and providing aid and fighting directly. Um, and fighting directly, I think, and that's why I'm I'm not in personally, um, and I'm, here I agree with um, NATO, but perhaps you would do, wouldn't you, General Sir? Uh, but but the, um, the the concept of a no-fly zone, I think, is is putting too much at risk for too little value. Mm-hmm. In the too little value, is it doesn't stop rockets, it doesn't stop artillery pounding those cities. So you don't overcome that problem by creating a no-fly zone unless you actively not only create a no-fly zone, but actively prosecute war against those artillery and those um, missile batteries um, and start taking them out from the air, which NATO has the ability to do 
but NATO, if it did that, would then be in direct conflict. And so I think there, this is not semantics. This is an important distinction. But it does sort of lead to those almost farcical situations like around the Polish MiGs, doesn't it? The aircraft where, you know, they'll say, well, we'll happily make them available to the US to give to the Ukraine, but we don't want to give them to the Ukraine ourselves. And the Americans say, well, we're not going to give them to Ukraine. And, I, you know, you totally get that, but it can almost feel like bleak comedy. Yes. Um, and, and you know, dancing on the head of a pin to try and um, avoid slipping into a, mm. a, a, a scenario which we can't get back from. Um, it, it feels very odd, but the consequences of getting this wrong are, in my view, really, really bad. And so, mm. so you know, it's worth dancing on a pin. And I never thought I'd say that. I'm a soldier. I like just just get on and deal with it. But actually, in, 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 in this case, I, I genuinely think drawing those distinctions is important because what we don't want is an out-and-out conflict with Russia because we're both NATO and Russia on nuclear powers. Um, talking about you being a soldier, I'm, I'm kind of really interested in how your mind works, Richard. I'm, I'm not a lot of <laughs> You mean you perceive that it does work? <laughs> it's very, very well. You know, uh, um, you know, you are, you know, you are a soldier, but you're also an incredibly progressive thinker, as I, as I know. You, you know, you're, you're very nuanced, and uh, and you think thinking in a very wide space, not just in a, in, a, in, a, in a pure sort of military operational sense. But I just wanted to ask you because I, I remember what I found a quite arresting and, and emotionally charged conversation I had with you, where you told me once that. You, you'd had to order your soldiers into a situation you, you, you almost certainly knew that they were not going to come back from. And as it turned out, luckily, most of them did. But, but as you gave the order, you said, you know, this is, I'm sending these men probably to their deaths. And, and, and you said to me, but I knew it was the right thing to do. I mean, I'm kind of really intrigued. What, what is the mental furniture that you have and fall back on or rely on to be able to make that kind of call? Because I think it's something that, that most of us could not understand. Gosh, that's a very deep question, Mark, for this time in the morning. <laughs> um, I think there's um, there's a couple of things there. One is, is it right morally? Is it the right thing to do? Is, is if you like, the outcome so important that um, you're prepared to risk soldiers' lives in order to be able to deliver that outcome? Mm, that's, that's quite like the George Orwell quote, you know, war is evil, but often it is the lesser evil. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember really clearly, very, very early on in my career, uh, somebody asked the question, what's the difference between soldiers and civilians? And, and the answer was, um, there's only one difference. And the difference is a soldier is prepared to die for what he or she believes in. That's the only difference. Um, uh, otherwise, we're no different to peacekeepers in terms of police or whatever. Um, uh, you know, actually, we're prepared to die for it. And we're, 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 that is part of the contract that we sign, if you like. Um, I mean, it's not written down, but it's part of the contract and part of the bond uh, that we sign that um, we're prepared to die for what we think is right now. We may get it wrong, um, but we think it's right at the time. The other reason for doing it, of course, is, is that you are ultimately saving more life. By taking this action, you are actually going to preserve more life in the so doing. So your psyche is, um, am I prepared to risk life to save life? Um, and if your answer to that is yes, well, sorry, I'll put it the other way. If your answer to that is no, I'm not prepared to risk life to save life then to my mind, you cease to be a soldier. Um, now, that's not the case in all circumstances. But, but I, I remember a commanding officer of mine who uh, turned around when we were in Bosnia and he said, this country is not worth a single British life. And I turned around to him and said, in which case, why are we here? We're here to preserve the peace. We're here to try and bring some stability to a country that's been racked by civil war, where there is all sorts of danger out there still, even if people aren't shooting us at us on a day-to-day -day basis, which they very definitely weren't in Bosnia. But if you're prepared to say that no soldier is, you, you're not prepared to lose a single one of your soldiers in the prosecution of trying to keep that peace, then why on earth are you there? You might as well go home. So I think there's a there's a really strong argument for saying that um, it is about preserving life, and, and I would I would get back to this no fly zone. The the perception, my perception, the Secretary of State of Defence's perception, NATO's perception is if we had a no fly zone, the consequences for loss of life would be far greater actually than if we got into direct conflict with Russia. 
So talking about that, doing what's right, that's a very eloquent answer. Thank you. But I, I'm just wondering, you know, because obviously what you believe to be right is, is is coloured by your experiences and your knowledge and whatever. How much knowledge does the average soldier have of, of the historical context in which they now find themselves? For instance, like, you know, I'm thinking about in, in the in the Middle East or in Iraq, you know, how, how much does the average soldier know about, say, the Sykes-Picot agreement and be able to sort of put all that into a moral perspective? Because I'm hoping when you say they all, they're all, as, as you train for a soldier, you're absolutely forced to study European history in extreme detail, but I suspect that's not the case. If it was a question of priorities, I would prefer my soldier to understand the tactical detail of what is necessary on the ground in order to preserve peace than the uh, slightly more esoteric Sykes-Picot agreement um, or the uh, Durand line in Afghanistan. Um, uh, and so um, I, I would argue this is a question of priorities. But I'll give you two examples. One is when we went to Iraq, um, uh, we were there as the brigade immediately after the war fighters. In fact, when we went out on our recce, um, uh, uh, up until a certain point in time where we said it was stupid, we couldn't get back because the RAF was saying, no, 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 the priority of seats going back to England um, are for the war fighters, not for you. You haven't fought a war to get here. You know, we said, well, look, if we don't get back, we can't come and replace the war fighters. And therefore, <laughs> um, this was on our, our reconnaissance before um, we went out there. Um, so, so I went out and nobody knew what Iraq was going to be like. We'd just fought a war there in 2003. So what was my training? My training was a week of history for the regiment, a week of history of what are um, troops um, in the 1920s all the way to, and, and the sort of 1900s all the way. And all my soldiers sat through that. How much of that they they remember, I think, is is probably not relevant. But for the officers and for the senior people like me in the battle group, it made a big difference of understanding what happened in the 1920s, why, what sort of reception we were going to get from people who might remember the 1920s. And sure enough, um, one of the headmen of one of the villages presented me with a Webley um, revolver, which um, his uh, grandfather had used against the British troops in the 1920s. <laughs> so um, I gave it back to him very politely, but um, took all the bullets out of it. But uh, history does matter. That's one side. The other side is that um, actually people who need to understand that very definitely are encouraged uh, through um, both lectures and encouraged through um, uh, debate to understand what's happening. So the senior commanders of any theatre will try and understand the history of it and try and understand what are the implications. But at the basic soldier level, what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach respect for the local community, trying to teach um, an understanding of who is who is if you like going to attack you and who isn't going to attack you you try and make the assumption that nobody's going to attack you but that will get you into trouble if you assume that nobody's going to attack you all the time and so on so soldiers need to understand the local local perspective um some of that will be history some of that won't be and you need to teach them the history that is relevant to that rather than teach them global history the question i mean if we turn the sort of the, the timeline forward, building on that sort of historical context. I mean, it seems now that there's this kind of huge amount of clamour for, you know, people putting, uh, saying the UK should have a climate change pass, that, you know, people are attacking net zero, you know, we should be reopening coal power plants and mines and fracking and drilling. I mean, and surely this moment above all others is perhaps that ultimate wake-up call for a monumental move away from what we might call sources of conflict energy um, and dependence on fossil fuels from, you know, authoritarian kleptocratic states, um, and actually to go really, really big on on renewables. And I've just I noticed in the the news this week, Germany has just announced two hundred and twenty billion euros over the next four years to obviously dramatically fast track their move away from those. But I mean, what what would you say, Richard, to those? rather antagonistic voices in the media who were saying, now's the time to nix net zero and, and go back to, to fossil fuels. Uh, I, I would say um, they have got it so totally wrong, they don't understand what they're saying. Um, uh, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> um, I utterly agree with you that this is the time to go to net zero. This is the time to double down on, on moving as fast as we possibly can to any form of renewable energy. Um, and there's two reasons for that, P possibly three reasons for that. One one reason is we won't be dependent on Russia's oil and gas um, of, of a kleptocratic um, uh, government. Uh, and another reason is that, um, you know, the price of gas and the price of oil is just rocketing. You know, somebody mm -hmm. said to me that um, uh, they saw, um, or I, I read in some paper, that the potential for 300 
dollars a barrel of oil uh, you know this is um, and i remember somebody saying a couple of years ago it'll never ever go above 100 we'll always regulate it to below 100 and we're now talking about it's 170 already and there could be up to 300 you know this is hugely expensive um and renewables will come in cheaper um, and consistently cheaper um, and that's a point it's not subject to political and to um the world's position uh, because renewables are there but the third reason is straight resilience we as a country if we're independent of russia's oil independent of saudi oil independent of of gas from wherever it's coming from in europe and you know whether it's norway or whatever if we're independent as a country we are more our masters of our own destiny mm. and that must be a good thing when it comes to energy it's not a good thing when it comes to politics but it's a really good thing when it comes to energy and so i would say this is this is absolutely the time to do it well, as a soldier you're saying you know it's a national security priority to move over to renewables as quickly as possible yeah i would i would absolutely advocate that Absolutely, yeah. I'm talking about the expense uh, in our WhatsApp chat that we had. Richard, you, you sent me this uh, rather amusing maxim uh, about the cost of things now. It says wine is now cheaper than fuel, so drink, don't drive. Uh, which, <laughs> 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 this is certainly how I feel at the moment. <laughs> well, there's a sort of modicum of positivity about the chat, and, and I'm aware we should probably keep this fairly brief so it sort of serves its purpose as a sort of a special to give people as much information as we can, but also some context. And I think what a lot of people are struggling with about Ukraine is it, it looks different to us. It's it's Europe, it's people who speak English. I've never followed a war where people from that country are phoning Five Live, they're phoning radio. You know, we hear them talking and we see them and that makes it feel very close to us and we're seeing this footage and hearing you talk about the cost of life weighed up against more lives, I think is really important for people when they're watching things like the maternity hospital bombing is is so traumatic for people here to be dealing with. I wonder if you could speak about, because obviously when you speak, you, when you talk about Bosnia and Afghanistan and Syria, you realise that this isn't new and there is a sense that we weren't prepared for this and because we didn't do anything in the Crimea, he's been able to plan and we're on the back foot. Could you reassure the listeners and feel free to say no, um, and it's not your job to be positive because we've told you to, but that actually there is a process. There are experienced people at every level, politically and within the armed forces, who are watching. There is there's a NATO process by which actually we can trust people with expertise on our side who know what they're doing and and will sort of handle this to the best of their capabilities. So the one lesson I think that you learn from history about war is the moment you go to war, all bets are off and it's unpredictable and you can't predict the outcome particularly easily, certainly not at the start and we're at the start. So in the context of what whatever is happening um, will lead to unpredictable outcomes. And so all those pundits who say, I definitely know what's going to happen, I would just say, um, uh, yeah, that's a point of view and it's a, it, it, it's a, um, a perception, it's not the truth. But in answer to your question, Yes, um, uh, there is a really, really important aspect of this. And, um, and one of the reasons I think that uh, the West has reacted so strongly is because there is a very strong perception that what we hold dear, which is liberal democracy, the ability to speak your mind, and, and you know, I could be trolled all over the place to say that doesn't really exist in this country and all the rest of it, but actually I believe it does for the vast majority, um, uh, that actually um, that was under threat because if we hadn't stopped Putin, um, we wouldn't, um, uh, that, that, that there's no guarantee that he wouldn't carry on and try and attack what are now liberal democracies within, uh, um, uh, or more liberal democracies than, than just Ukraine. But I would point to one thing which is positive, and this is controversial, and of course people will disagree with it, but, but the one thing I would have said which is shown that there are grown-ups in NATO and grown-ups in the states of Western Europe, well, there's two things. One is, we're not acceding to a no-fly zone. We do understand the consequences of our actions. We do understand that if we if we directly go to war to Russia, that will be worse for Western Europe and for our populations. And so we must help Ukraine as much as possible, but not get directly involved is a personal view, but it's one that seems to be reinforced. And I think that's a grown-up view. The second point I would make um, is look at Germany 
at how they have um, reversed their, um, as you were saying, they've reversed their energy policy. They're, they're putting more into defence. You know, how sad that we have to put more into to defence in some respects. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always been crying out for more as, as, as a member of defence, but actually the reality is if you could have a world where you don't need to spend so much on defence, wouldn't that be lovely? But it's not reality. And therefore there are grown-ups making really controversial decisions in order to try and make or if you like, preserve the peace of Western Europe and preserve our own populations as best we possibly can to maintain the liberal democracies. And I think that is very reassuring that we're not just saying Putin's a, um, you know, a, a madman who we must stop, um, regardless of the consequence. No, we're really thinking about the consequences um, for our own peoples. And I think that is a positive. It's Interesting, despite you know all the squabbles or whatever, that, that this is in a way very unifying for Europe, you know, and and for a whole bunch of nations that may have sort of squabbled with each other before. This is like we are all like, no, when it comes to this, we're going to all stand together and, and standing really quite resolutely. And you're and you're seeing business do it as well, and banks do it, and people that we normally might have some issues with. It seems that they're all kind of stepping up to the plate to a certain extent. Would you would you agree with that? Do you think that's an optimistic take? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's unifying in a way that um, almost nothing else has in Europe. I mean, it's extraordinary, um, actually, what, what is happening in Europe, both militarily. Um, I mean, for EU, EU to give lethal aid to Ukraine is unprecedented. They've never done that before. The EU doesn't really think of itself as a military organisation at all. Um, and for them to be buying arms and giving them to Ukraine um, is extraordinary. Um, it also blurs the distinction between EU and NATO, which some people have been trying to keep very finely apart. Um, but that's another story. Um, I, I think we're seeing um, th th this, this concept of um, economic warfare, uh, which encompasses not just sanctions, but it encompasses, um, you know, BP and Shell being basically told by the government to get out of Russia. And Shell, I don't know whether you saw, they they bought some some fuel, some Russian fuel at the um, at the weekend. And on Monday, the um, chief executive was backtracking as fast as possible and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, we didn't really mean it and we didn't really understand what we were doing. Well, you know, that sort of reaction from a chief executive or something like Shell is extraordinary. There is immense pressure to come in line and to say, we will stop Russia economically if we possibly can. I think, I think you know, it's, it's fantastic. Um, it probably won't survive longer than having a existential threat. But, you know, every country knows that the existential threat um, and external threat is a very good way of unifying your country. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'm just wondering how long Russia can survive that kind of economic warfare that we're seeing. I think something like 60% of their exports of, of fossil fuels or whatever by value and a lot of their reserves are also in dollars which are now frozen i mean one, one wonders if there's a new russian revolution coming well i i think and again this is me as a private citizen predicting but if you look at history i think that is the only way we'll get rid of putin it'll be an internal coup i don't think that is going to happen very fast it took you know seven or eight years in afghanistan it um, to to sort of bring down the Soviet Empire, and that was with Gorbachev, um, who was a very liberal thinker by by Soviet standards. Um, you know, understanding the economic implications of the fighting in Afghanistan, it was the people turning around and saying, "We've had enough of body bags coming home." You mm -hmm. know, um, uh, but it took years. Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that Ukraine will take as long as that um, to to create that atmosphere. But Putin has a really strong grip on on the power in Russia, as I understand it, and people standing up to him is really difficult. And therefore, you've got to build that base of enough people with enough confidence to turn around and say, we'll get rid of Putin. And that takes a long time. I'm not sure what our Russian listenership is for um, Grunderson in the future, not. Um... Only need to be one, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the only thing I would... I would add, and this is a plea from my heart, this is the first time, and you know, I've seen lots of refugees and so on, it's the first time I've felt um, so strongly, and it, and it is because it's really not their fault, and you could say that about a lot of refugees, but um, it's really not the fault of Ukrainians, it's unprovoked aggression by Russia, um, it is absolutely unacceptable what Russia's doing to um, uh, Ukraine. Um, my only thought is, you know, we must try and help the Ukrainians as much as possible, and, and um, you know, I was given a website yesterday 
yesterday um, of people who can put down their names to offer rooms in their houses for Ukrainian refugees. Um, and um, uh, there were two purposes of that. One was to um, uh, to encourage the government by so many people signing up to it. They hoped that um, uh, it would encourage the government to allow lots of refugees in because there will be places for them to come to. Um, and um, the second was to offer support. And, and I signed up and said, yeah, they can use a couple of rooms in my house uh, to offer support to refugees. And I would just say, um, let's try and help the Ukrainians as much as possible because they are fighting a war on our behalf. Let's be really clear about that. We will support them as much as we can, but they're fighting a war on our, our behalf. They're taking the brunt of the casualties. They're taking the brunt of all the damage. Um, and anything that we can do to help them and ultimately defeat Putin, I think, is a good thing to do. And that's, that's you know, not sitting on a fence. That's not, not necessarily speaking as a soldier, but speaking as somebody who genuinely believes that Putin won't stop with Ukraine if we let him get away with it. I think that's a perfect point to end on. Thank you, Richard. That's been absolutely superb. You are a soldier, but you're also a very, very progressive thinker. And I think how you think about the world is is incredibly, in a strange way, comforting. And I never thought I would say that to a senior ranking military (laughs) officer. But uh, there is something in your wisdom that is almost father-like, I think. And it just makes me feel a little bit um, happier with the world that you're in it. I'm going to go and give Mark a hug now after the show. Just (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I can't do that virtually, I'm afraid, Mark. (laughs) So uh, our thanks, obviously, to Richard. Uh, Thanks to you, Mark, for putting us in touch and managing to secure his time. And thank you to both of you for your questions. Is there anything either of you would like to say at the end of the chat? Uh, John Richardson for Prime Minister. Yeah, do you notice he, uh, that's the question he dodged? I mean, we asked him some, you asked him a question about how you send people to their death in war, and he was able to answer. But when you put to him the concept of me as Prime Minister, he, uh, he said he would come back to that one later and let me answer. So I will take the opportunity to answer that question and say, that is not going to happen. And when you watch uh, Zelensky, you realise he is an exceptional human being who happens at some point to have done some comedy. And uh, I am a very average human being who happens also to do some comedy yeah you've also got to go through the rite of passage which is winning you know strictly come dancing because he also did that didn't he on his Mm. rise to the top oh well there you go then now you've said uh, that strictly as part of the rite of passage then i can happily say that although i would love to be as as, uh, strong and as brave as him sadly my charleston is what prevents me from being able to uh, take the reins of this country and I think that's something we, we should all reflect on. But uh, we will be back. There are um, future episodes of the regular series. Obviously, timings now are uh, put into context by what's going on. So we did feel it was important to do what this podcast is supposed to do and have longer conversations about difficult subjects. And, and Richard was the person that we, we knew we needed for this one. So um, I hope this has been of some comfort to uh, anyone listening. It will be. As Richardson, I think that was an interesting... I put him on the spot and said, can you make people feel better about this, basically? And and the answer was one that we've had before, and I know we've, we've talked about about climate, that I think some of... To some extent, the best thing you can do is, is simply to accept that it's going to go on a long time and it will be a, a process of being up and down and to be human is to be subject to your emotions and, and we will all feel, I think, very upset by some of the things we're seeing and... Um, talk have conversations you can reach out to us if you have any specific you want to ask about this episode or what's going on at the moment then you can reach us via the usual channels and here's how to do so you can reach us by email at hello at john and the that's hello at john j-o-n and the future noughts all one word dot com we have our own show twitter account which is at j and the f and of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Thank you, Mark and Ed. Thank you, John. Thank you. I'm very grateful to you both. Stay together, stay well. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we will hear from you soon. Bye-bye.